Welcome back to the Geared Ashley Mullet Show. This is Geared Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 172 of season 3, 237 of the podcast. Today is Monday, October 25th, 2021, and I want to talk about the relationship between works and faith, between faith and works. And I'd like to read for you from the start here a little selection from James chapter 2 that has been on my mind with regards to this. I talk a fair amount, and I have written and podcasted a fair amount over the years on the dangers of socialism and what a lure coveting your neighbor's things, your neighbor's status, wealth, position, luxury, security, whatever, what a lure that is for so many people, so many young people in our day. And as Winston Churchill once said, socialism is the philosophy of failure, the creed of ignorance, and the gospel of envy. Its inherent virtue is the equal sharing of misery. But as much as I've talked about the dangers of socialism and compulsory charity and the government coming in on behalf of a whole lot of woke leftists and deciding that this is your fair share. We've decided that you're not paying your fair share and that actually everybody else deserves a cut of your pie. I've spent a lot of time talking about that, but there is a little bit more in the mix than just our need to not covet other people's things. What responsibility, for instance, do we bear ourselves when Paul writes that the Lord loves a cheerful giver. Now, he's not twisting the arms of those who are in a position to give. And he doesn't just forget that he could or miss an opportunity because he's simple or dull or anything like that. He's intentionally not trying to strong arm them into giving something that they are not interested in giving. Think about Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts, who want to have a reputation in the early church for having given everything to the church, to the poor. So they sell a piece of property and they claim that they have brought the entire amount of money that they made on that property to the church, to give to the church, because others are doing this, selling all that they have and just pooling all of their resources, all of their money together, taking care of the poor of the city. It's a great testimony. But again, we're not compelled to do that. But what gets Ananias and Sapphira into major trouble is that they lie. They keep back some of the money, but they claim to have given all of the money. The problem is not that they kept some of the money for themselves, for that matter, it wouldn't have been a problem if they had kept all of the money. It was all theirs. 
and they could have kept it all. The problem was that they lied to the Holy Spirit. They lied to the church. They lied to God. In lying, their motivation was very similar to that of the Pharisees, who Jesus expressly warned against the example of. When you give, don't give as the Pharisees do. When you pray, don't pray as the Pharisees pray. They want to be seen by men. They know that they get a bump in their reputation. They'd get along very well with Edward Bernays, father of modern public relations as a career path, as a profession. Don't do that. But Ananias and Sapphira, they do it. And first the husband, then the wife are given an opportunity to come clean. And they double down and God strikes them dead. And that's the end of Ananias and Sapphira. And the book of Acts says that the fear of the Lord increased greatly among the whole church. That increased their reverence for God. And they took him more seriously after that, which I think was the point. And I think had God not intervened in that way at that time, the opposite would have happened. There would have been a lot less fear of the Lord moving forward. But I want to read for you James chapter 2, 14 through 17, because I think it does apply here to a great extent. I think also the Good Samaritan's story applies here. And then I want to do a little bit of commentary. I don't have a whole lot of time, but I want to talk a little bit about how do we hold these two ideas in our hands at the same time. From James. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So there's this little selection here. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled. What good is that? It is very good to pray for one another. That is a very good thing to do. Sometimes we don't know how to help. Sometimes we're not able to help. And anything more than just praying for this person. But you know, I think that sometimes we tell ourselves all we can do is pray about it because we don't want to do anything more than pray about it. Think also of the Good Samaritan. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, 
passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Luke chapter 10, verse 25 to 37. I think also of First John. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Very similar to what we read in James. That's First John 3.17. There's also Matthew 25.35. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Verse 36. Verse 37. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? Verse 38. And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? Verse 39. When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? Verse 40, and the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. These passages together make very clear, to my mind, that faith alone is never going to be alone. Saving faith is never alone. If Our faith is in the Most High God. Truly, we should have some kind of fruit. And you don't try to replicate the fruit so as to be accepted in. That's backwards. You don't do that. But if you don't see fruit in keeping with your profession of faith, it should give you pause. You should be concerned about that. You know, I'm always struck by Jesus telling this story of the Good Samaritan because you've got these characters in the cast who are good people, right? They're good people, and they're on their way to do very important things for the Lord, and they can't be bothered. And I just wonder to myself, what excuses did they make for themselves as far as why they weren't going to stop and help this guy that was beaten and left for dead and robbed, left for dead on the side of the road. What excuse did they tell themselves? Did they say, he probably had it coming, he probably fell in with the wrong sort, the wrong lot, got what he had coming to him? Kids these days, millennials, what do you do? What's this world coming to? What did they tell themselves in order to justify passing by on the other side? Because it isn't enough that they just kept going and they didn't help him. They passed by on the other side as if to stay as far clear of him as they possibly could. You know, one possibility 
Although, of course, Jesus doesn't elaborate, and I shouldn't make so much of the things which are more obscure in this passage. But one possibility is they expected that the robbers are still around. If we stop to check on this guy, we might get jumped as well. Tough luck for him. I got somewhere to be. The good Lord wouldn't want me to keep him waiting. Another distinct possibility is that they were afraid that if they took a closer look, they might have to help this guy. So they passed by on the other side to increase not only physical distance, but also psychological distance. Lieutenant Colonel David Grossman talks about this in his book on killing. Psychological distance. I don't want to look too closely and see your face and recognize you as a fellow human being because then I would feel certain responsibilities towards you by God's design. And yet it's the good Samaritan who gets in there and helps. And the good Samaritan is an irony because the Samaritans were held in contempt by good and faithful Jews. The Samaritans were not thought of as good people. Their theology was a bit wacky. The way that they worshipped, their traditions were just a bit off, a bit out of step with what is correct. And yet, it's amazing that the Son of God uses one of them to make a point to a very smug, self-impressed teacher of the law who wants to justify himself for all to see, and he wants to make Jesus look silly if possible. It's amazing. It's amazing that Jesus uses the Good Samaritan to put this man to shame. This man has so much, but he wants more. He's never satisfied. He wants more and more. This is part of why I believe Jesus called fishermen to be his disciples. This is why he called a tax collector. He wanted to use the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. The first people who were told that the Messiah had been born, the promised Messiah, the Messiah promised way back in the Garden of Eden to Eve, hand in glove with the curse, was a promise of restoration by God himself. The first people to be told that the Messiah had been born in Bethlehem were shepherds. Shepherds were not polite society. They weren't highfalutin members of the nicest country club, the nicest rec center, the nicest what have you. Shepherds, they smell like sheep. They live out in the wilderness. They're a little odd, a little eccentric. Sometimes they're out there a little too long. It's remarkable. I want to play a short song for you. My boys exposed me to this every now and then when we say something that sounds like one of the lines from the song, they will break into it. And I'm just going to play a certain amount of it. I'll probably cut it off before we get to the very tail end. But this is Good Person by The Odd Ones Out featuring Rumi. Check it out. I'm at the 
the supermarket Gonna cop some rhubarb I reach into my pocket It's time to get charged I'm paying cash and I know what happens next is strange I flash a stun and smile and say You can keep the change Oh, what? Oh yeah, I'm a good person You can have that money It's yours And also coins are uncomfortable in my pockets Sitting by my computer, mom comes inside the lair. It's smelling like a sewer, you should go get some air. I'm getting up and stretch, I'm filling up with pride. I open up the door and put a single foot outside. Oh, what? Oh yeah, I'm a good person. My lifestyle's quite unhealthy I snacked recording this Got an expanding belly Can't find a shirt that fits From my chair to the kitchen From my snack bowl to the brim Yeah, I know that might look bad But then I sign up for a gym Oh, what? Oh yeah, I'm a good person You get the idea The funny thing about it is It's like everything he is telling himself Makes him such a fantastic person is pretty lame. It's pretty, like, bare minimum. I feel really, really good about myself. Look at me. Am I not fantastic? He's self-impressed. But I think that's where a lot of us are at. I think a lot of us are in that self-impressed mode where we think that doing anything whatsoever, any seemingly good deed or any deed that could be construed from the right angle, the right people looking as good, that makes us a good person. That means we're great. And even when we're of a Christian persuasion in our thinking, too often we suppose I go to church, I read my Bible every now and then, and that's it. That's enough. What more do you want? And the crazy thing is, when we look at James, that passage I read for you at the top of the episode, he says here, verse 18, But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So in other words, congratulations. Before you start doing a touchdown dance, like I'm a good person because you believe that there's one God, just stop and think to yourself, also Satan. Satan believes that too. Does that make him a good person? Is he doing a touchdown dance right next to you? Hmm. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see the faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone, and in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. This is remarkable. Kind of like using a Samaritan, using Rahab the harlot, Rahab the prostitute, or if you will, to be just a little bit more crude, 
Rahab the Hooker. She is a woman of the night. Red light district, not polite society. You started off on the right foot, maybe, to keep everybody unoffended by going with Abraham. But now you bring up Rahab the prostitute. Ouch. You also said, even the demons believe and shudder. Ouch. So as I promised at the top, I want to talk a little bit, real briefly, because I do need to go to work. I want to talk a little bit about how we can be very concerned about coveting anything that belongs to our neighbor and also look very seriously at this faith without works is dead in the context of Luke 10, verses 25 through 37, the story, the parable of the Good Samaritan, 1 John three seventeen, if anyone with earthly possessions sees his brother in need but withholds his compassion from him, how can the love of God abide in him? Matthew 25, verse 35. I was hungry and you gave me food. Whatever you did to the least of these in my name, you also did to me. The Lord loves a cheerful giver. And I think that sometimes, especially in conservative Christian circles, we really emphasize the Lord loves a cheerful giver to the exclusion of asking the hard question of what does it say about the quality and the sincerity of our profession of faith when we feel no special need to take care of our brother in need? What does that say about whether or not our faith is genuine? You know, yesterday being Sunday morning, my friend and pastor Paul Pavlik was preaching and he brought up Jeremiah Burroughs and the Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. And that's such an interesting book to have just read in the midst of COVID, in the midst of rising demands for socialism. The welfare state is exploding and probably will explode. But as Paul pointed out, and we had discussed this as we were reading the book, one has to really question when we're so devastated by little setbacks, when we're always complaining, we're always tired, we're always aggravated, we're always on edge, we're never able to rest. One has to question, we ourselves should question, what does that mean about what we really believe concerning God? What do we really believe about God? What do we believe about God and who he says we are and what his promises are and what his character is and his unchanging nature, his immutability, as we would say, his goodness, his holiness, his righteousness, his justice, his peace, his mercy. What do we believe about all of that? Do we believe that he has good plans and intentions for his children? for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So also, what does it say about our relationship with God, our profession of faith, when that love for our neighbor doesn't look like the Good Samaritan? We pass by on the other side. We make excuses. We come up with very convenient reasons to tamp down that guilty feeling we're getting because we want to say, be warmed and filled. We want to withhold our compassion from our brother. 
And I have to be really careful because it's too easy to do an either or. And it's not either or. It's both and. You know, the whole story of the widow's might just goes to show that it's not about how much we have with which to be generous. In fact, it might be a blessing when you don't have quite so much because riches can be very deceptive. I was looking yesterday at my Coinbase account, and I've got maybe a dozen or so of these coins, these cryptocurrencies that none of them are crazy out-of-this-world picks. I did have Bitcoin. I did some Bitcoin mining over the summer and the spring and mined about $1,500 worth of Bitcoin. And then I recently ended up cashing that out. And I took $1,000 of the $1,500 that I cashed out. And I used it to cover the difference on our being able to pay bills. Or some of the difference. Not all. But I covered some of the difference of what we were able to pay as far as bills on that check. Because my hours are being cut left and right. I have a manager who does not care. Does not care. Has not been told that he needs to do what he's doing, but he is doing it. And when I told him, you're going to drive me into bankruptcy, his response was, we all make personal choices. So I'm looking at Coinbase, and I'm debating sometimes. Do I pull out the crypto that I've got this week? You know, in another week, maybe one of these takes off. And there's this one just odd, little, weird, eccentric cryptocurrency that I ended up taking $500 that was left of my Bitcoin mining, and I rolled it into this because I didn't want to pull everything out. I want to leave some of my investments in there so that they can make a profit. And so far in two weeks, knock on wood, I've made about $200 worth of profit on a $500 investment in this odd little crypto. Shiba Inu is what it's called. It's an Ethereum-based imitator of Dogecoin. And Dogecoin, by the way, if I would have gotten on that when it was worth what Shiba Inu is right now, Shiba Inu is like 0.000038 dollars per right now. I have 16 million Shiba Inu. Doge is at 26 cents, I think, as of this morning per Doge. If I would have gotten in on the Dogecoin bandwagon when it was valued at what Shiba Inu is right now, I would have, let's see here, let me do the quick math. I figured out uh, 16, 16 million, so about $4 million. That's about what I would have. I'd have about $4 million worth of Shiba Inu on a $500 investment. Just to give you some perspective. And how this all works precisely, exactly, I still don't pretend to understand. I put a little bit of investment in there. Seems like a better bet than playing the stock market or just having the money hang out in my bank account. But I'm looking at this and I'm thinking to myself, all of this that I see, I mean, if, if in five seconds my 16 million Shiba Inu suddenly did go to 26 cents per Shiba and I did have 
quote-unquote $4 million worth of Shiba Inu. I would only have that $4 million worth of Shiba Inu if I cashed out right that second. But then you don't know, right? Maybe it goes higher. What if it goes to a dollar? If it goes to a dollar, you've got $16 million worth of Shiba Inu. You don't want to let go of that, right? But if you hold on to it, and all of a sudden it crashes down to what it was before, to 0.000027 dollars per or whatever, well, then you made no money. And this really gets at the deceptiveness of riches. And I think it also gets at who are we trying to impress? Are we trying to impress the good Lord? Where do we derive our security from? Where do we derive our sense of worth and value, our own personal value? I'm not talking about our net worth. I'm talking about our personal value as a human being. Jesus says at one point, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? And I've been thinking about that one here recently with the whole vaccine mandate business. At what point do I say no? And here's a riddle. Try this one on for size. If I would file for a religious exemption, on the grounds that you've used aborted fetal tissue to develop this vaccine, you've put it in, you've cloned aborted fetal tissue, and put it in the vaccine, and I am not comfortable with that. Abortion, legal, rare, supposedly, and safe, supposedly, although not safe at all, not if it's a successful abortion. Abortion is straight from the pit of hell. It's a holdover from... Offering children to false gods in the land of Canaan. Instead of Molech, we've got the priests of science and self-actualization, Maslow's hierarchy. Just build a little altar to that at your nearest Planned Parenthood. And if I would file for a religious exemption, if I thought I might get it, then why, in God's name, would I just hold my nose and do this anyways if they won't offer a religious exemption or if they'll turn down a religious exemption or if they'll punish me for trying to get a religious exemption? You can't have it both ways. You can't say, I want a religious exemption. Oh, you won't give it to me? Oh, okay. I guess God's not as important to me as money is. No. And that shouldn't be taken as a argument for, well, don't file for the religious exemption, but it should be taken for, you know, if you're concerned about your testimony here, don't put up unless you're willing to follow through. Don't bluff on this. And I have to really wrestle. That feeling of uncomfortability, isn't that my conscience? My sense that this is wrong, that I would be forced to do this and that I should not participate in the least I should not go along with this in the least because it's going to be the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. The next and the next and the next line are going to be harder. They're not going to be easier. They're going to be harder. And if I can't say no on this one, I'm not going to be able to say no on the next one or the next one or the next one. This is a classic tactic with regards to manipulation. Get people saying yes, 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 yes. And then all of a sudden you ask them a question which... Otherwise, they would have said no if you hadn't primed the pump, if you hadn't conditioned them to feel beholden to saying yes to you right now. But I really grapple with 
what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul on the one hand? And feeling a kind of frustration, not because every Christian that I know that is family or friends has the wherewithal to be able to have my back, have my family's back in a pinch. But here's the God's honest truth. Several of my family members do have the wherewithal, and they've passed by on the other side for years now. And I think they've made excuses for themselves. They've told themselves, well, you know Garrett, he makes bad life choices. He's got a bad attitude. If he would just figure out how to play nice, if he just would have listened to good advice years ago, he wouldn't be in this situation. He's like his father, smart, but headstrong. Oh, well, consequences. I really grapple with the rock and the hard place of, on the one hand, spending the majority of my time really calling the socialist-minded envy crowd into repentance. Come on, come to Jesus. You're jealous. You see other people who have more than you do, and you think you have a fair share of what they have earned, and you're painting with a broad brush, and you're bearing false witness claiming you somehow know that everybody who has more money than you do cheated and lied and defrauded in order to get it. You don't know that. That's bearing false witness. That's the whole problem with social justice. You don't know that that person is guilty of the thing that you're claiming they're guilty of. You just know that they match certain criteria so you can put them in certain compartments And then you're painting with a broad brush and shipping that entire category of people over the cliff into the abyss. All white people are this way. All men are this way. All heterosexual, straight, cisgender supposedly, although I cringe every time I even use that phrase, that term. They're all this way. They're all oppressive. All wealthy people are this way. Whoa, 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 whoa. Not so fast. And yet at the same time, it does boggle my mind that for years I've argued the case with regards to how inappropriate that is. At the same time as I've bit my tongue on the way wealthy people I know have related to me and my family. It's amazing to me how the widow's might has come into effect so many times with regards to people who had so much less and have so much less. They do not have the means, the wherewithal. They do not have the reserves, the cash on hand, the wealth. And yet they've donated time and energy. Hey, how are you guys doing? Just checking in. Just wanted to say, hey, do you need anything? I heard Lauren's been sick. I know she just went through a surgery. You doing okay? How's work going? How are the kiddos? Can we get you anything? And boy, howdy, that is such an encouragement. Even when you say, no, we're good. Thank you. Thank you for asking. Or if all you need is just somebody to talk with. I don't need anything except for some advice right now. Here's my situation. What do you think? But on the other hand, it's also very frustrating when 
you see professing Christians who have the means and don't lift even their little pinky finger to double check. Or you find out secondhand, and this is very old news, and I won't say who it was that was saying it, but you find out secondhand that years and years ago, when you were at your lowest financially, professionally, your dad was helping you because you couldn't find a job that paid enough to be able to make ends meet, to be able to get a place of your own or buy groceries or pay the utility bill or buy clothes for your kiddos or your wife or yourself. But it was 2008, 2007, 2009, 2006. You're trying to go to college and then you're trying to honor the Lord by getting married, having a family. You're working. You're working full time. You're going to school full time. You're involved in church. And you find out that a very wealthy family member, I'll just say that, a very wealthy family member who hurts not at all, who lacks for nothing, approached your dad, at least one did, approached your dad and said, I think you're enabling him. I think you need to stop helping him. He's just using you. (sighs) Advice to my dad who had far less admittedly. But the crazy thing is, it's like the story of the Good Samaritan. You pass by on the other side. You didn't know our circumstances. You didn't know the condition that we were in. Not really, truly. You didn't check on us. You didn't stop to see, are we okay? You passed by on the other side. You had very important places to go and places to be and people to see and people to impress. And if you thought it was to your advantage, I wonder, I wonder if you would have been far more generous, if you had thought it was to your advantage and you would have gotten more out of it than you put into it, if you thought it was a good investment, even today, I wonder if you would have showed a little bit more concern. But again, one has to be very careful in going there at all. Because I've got family who's on the opposite end of the spectrum also. Social justice, yeah, CRT, where do we sign? Woke Christianity, amen. Now, please celebrate us and please send us aid and support us and celebrate us to everyone because we're full-time vocational ministry. But boy, howdy, yeah, we're going to be right alongside this whole actual gospel stuff. We're going to be preaching this social gospel stuff, social justice gospel stuff, the CRT stuff. The rich aren't paying their fair share of taxes. Wait a second. Wait, 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 wait. The Lord loves a cheerful giver. Thou shalt not covet. They have a responsibility before God to conduct themselves in such and such a way. We have a responsibility to conduct ourselves in such and such a way. As for me, as for my circumstance, and I got to run, I got to go to work. But as for me, I look at, What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? And I really grapple with that. And boy, howdy, I'd love to be on the other side of this equation so I can test out these very fine theories someday, see what I would do if I had vast wealth to decide what to dispense, who to possibly help, maybe, maybe not. 
why, why not, who to pass by on the other side of, perhaps, hopefully not, who to shut up my bowels of compassion regarding, but hopefully not. But I keep coming back to that. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? And there's a big part of me that thinks to myself, you know what? Maybe I'm in the better situation. Struggling as we are, tenuous as our situation is, maybe I'm in the better situation if it's actually easier for me to learn contentment. Not that I've already learned it, not that I've already attained it, but if I don't have the stakes quite so high to where I go away sad when Jesus says to me, sell all that I have and give it to the poor. If I don't go away sad, because pff, can only go up from here, <laughs> where do I sign? Something to think about. I got to run, though. Like I said, I got to go to work. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.